Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining podcast. And today's guest is Fraser Tabiat, who's the MD of Polar X, uh, an Alaskan copper gold explorer developer. Um, Fraser is also the executive director at African Energy Resources Limited, um, who are a Botswana energy and resources company. Um, Fraser is a geologist by trade. Um, his expertise is in corporate management, strategy and finance, and developing mining companies from inception. So that's enough of me, and I want to uh, introduce Fraser um, and basically get a better understanding of what PolarX is about. Um, and I've got a number of questions that I want to ask him around that and, and probably some other topics that we can, uh, we can discuss as well. So I'd like to welcome Fraser. How are you doing, Fraser? Good, thanks, Rob. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Not too bad in sunny England. It's uh, oh, start, starting to get warm, warming up here. So, uh, so all good. Um, yeah, so... Fraser, just want to, um, so our audience understands a little bit more about you and about your background, just wonder if you can give a, an overview of obviously your career um, up until sort of current day, maybe tell the audience something that they may not know about you. Um, and then I've got obviously another question that I want to ask you. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I'm, um, whilst I've been living in Australia for the last 30 years, I am actually English by background. So I, um, I grew up on the south coast in Hampshire and um, started kicking around the chalk hills and seeing fossils and things like that as a, as a very young kid and like you know a lot of kids at that age were you know was fascinated by dinosaurs and things like that so I, you know I'd, I'd always sort of enjoyed the outdoors and and sort of geology without really knowing it was geology at the time so I went on and studied geology at the, um, the Royal School of Mines at Imperial College the honours degree there um, in mining geology which is a, one of the courses they let you specialise in <coughs> And um, and then was fortunate to be uh, asked to stay on and do a, a, a PhD, uh, working on a gold mine in uh, in Zimbabwe. So I did that in the uh, in the mid to late 1980s, and uh, and then was fortunate enough to um, get offered a job with uh, what was then Western Mining Corporation, which is one of the big uh, yeah, mining and exploration companies in Australia. So uh, got married. Uh, packed my bags and uh, went from London to uh, Kalgoorlie in the middle of the West Australian desert. And um, I think my wife took one look when she got out of the plane and said, what the heck have you done to us? And uh, <laughs> said, ah, you'll be fine, don't worry about it. So, uh, but yeah, we, we spent six fabulous years there and that's kind of where I really started to learn, learn my trade as an exploration geologist. And uh, you know, I spent 15 really good years with, uh, with WMC resources as they became. Um, working in Australia, um, lived in the Philippines for three years uh, with them and, and really got exposed to a lot of different types of mineral deposits and exploration techniques. You know, it was a, <clears throat> a very close-knit sort of family community of, of geologists and uh, yeah, a lot of really good science was applied and that's yeah, where I was sort of given a really good 
sort of grounding in, in you know, the proper application of science to, uh, to exploration. So that was a really good sort of uh, grounding and, and tuition. And, and that's where I started working on you know, the types of deposits that ultimately has taken me to Alaska with, with Polar X. So yeah, I sort of um, yeah, did the 15, 15, 16 years with WMC. And then uh, yeah, in 2005, uh, uh, the big Australian BHP bought the company. And, uh, and that was sort of a good time for me to go and do something else. So uh, I went and joined the, uh, the junior mining sector and sort of been consulting and working with small companies uh, ever since then. Um, initially, you know, the consulting role as a geologist and then more and more in, on the management side um, and then starting taking you know, leadership roles at executive director level and managing director level um, <coughs> you know, in two or three different companies and, and sort of ideally u- utilising the, the geological skills but also learning a lot of business skills and, and putting those into practice. So, you know, I've sort of seen the full spectrum now of, yeah, the technical side but also the, the corporate side. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been a good balance. You know, I think in the junior sector in particular for exploration, you know, you've got to have good science in there. You've got to have a good exploration play. If you can then mix that with good management, then you've got the ideal situation. And often you don't have both. You either have a pretty poor project and good management or a good project and an average management. Um, ideally, if you get the two together, then uh, that's where it gets really good fun. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I'd speak to, obviously, uh, a lot of UK guys um, and UK guys with sort of the experience that you've got, say 30 odd years experience in the industry. And a lot of them are either, they either go to South Africa, uh, when obviously when they graduate South Africa or they go to Australia. And I do get a lot of obviously graduates listening to the, to the podcast. Do you think it's, it was easier back then than it is now for graduates? Um, because again, my advice to a lot of graduates is obviously once they, once they um, finish their studies is to get that site experience. And obviously it's pretty limited here in the UK. And my, my um, advice to them is to obviously look at potential roles, maybe in Africa, um, but there seems to be pretty limited or go to Australia, get a year's working visa, see what happens, where it takes you. Do you think it's, do you think it's, it was easier back then than it is now? In in some ways. Yes. I mean, yeah, like a lot of people, you know, when I finished my first degree, um, I actually signed up to, to go and work on a gold mine in South Africa. So I was literally a few weeks away from going and doing that before the offer of the PhD came along. And that was you know, too good an opportunity to, to pass up. Um, so in, in, those, in, in that time, so the early, mid-1980s, South Africa was booming, uh, Canada was booming, uh, and Australia was, was booming. So those were the, the three main places that people tended to go. Um, you still kind of needed to either know somebody in the industry or to some extent get lucky. I mean, we, we were fortunate in the School of Mines in London in that you know, a lot of the big companies came there looking for graduates because they specifically trained people to do mining geology, which very few other courses in the UK did at that time. Um, so, yeah, in, in those days, it was relatively easy. Um, now, having said that, it's probably easier to travel now than it was in those days. And, and with, with the internet and you know, being able to do face-to-face meetings via Zoom, et cetera, uh, it's a lot easier to reach out to people than it ever was. And I think people are a lot better <coughs> at keeping in contact. You know, LinkedIn, for example, you know, sort of platforms like that where professionals can you know, sort of put themselves in front of people and also see what's going on. 
um, universities back in the 80s were generally pretty weak at career development. Uh, they, yeah, I remember yeah, in, in my era, it was literally a, a little box of cards, uh, mainly business cards from former um, students that had come back and left their business card. And by the time you contacted them, they generally moved on to another company. So you, yeah, email didn't really exist in those days. It was fax or written letters. So it, it's a lot more immediate these days. Um, but some of those markets have closed. It's much harder to get a job in South Africa now um, as, as an English graduate because there are good graduates coming out from South Africa itself. So you are competing with a, a bigger audience. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think in those days, I think particularly if you'd gone to one of the big universities in the UK, uh, there was still very much a, a sort of a, an old boys network of former graduates that were looking to employ people because they knew they were, they were well trained. Yeah. Um, that's probably not quite the case uh, anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, markets have got harder. Um, you know, I think now, particularly the junior market, um, you know, there's, there's periods where companies can raise money and there are periods when they can't and they hire people when they can and then they lay them off when they can't. So probably a lot more sort of uh, underemployed geologists than there ever were. And, yeah. Um, that does make it a little bit tough at times. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, like as, as right you said, I think the opportunities for graduates to go into South Africa is very limited, like you said, because there is, they're producing graduates anyway. But I think Australia, there is, there seems to be always opportunities out there. There is, it does seem to, and, uh, and as we're speaking now, it does, the Australian market does seem to be pretty busy um at the yeah, moment so i think there's always going to be those opportunities unfortunately with obviously the circumstances we're in with covid um i don't think <coughs> chances of people flying into australia or graduates flying into australia to look at those to, to obviously have those opportunities but i think what they should be doing is networking and obviously it, it yeah. needs to be done online and yeah. building those relationships because once the borders are up bang that's when you can go into the country yeah. and then follow up those and hopefully um get those opportunities so um yeah yeah no, i totally agree really i there. think um yeah particularly i say at the moment it's very hard for people to get into australia and conversely very hard for us to get out of australia as well i mean i'm sort of itching to get over to alaska because we're gonna have a jewelry go over there in a few a few weeks uh and at the moment it's it's very hard for me to get a permit to leave uh leave yeah here. yeah um, but yeah, that'll change. I think yeah. things will get back to uh, whatever the new normal is going to be. That 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 will happen. And, yeah. Um, yeah. I said I think for for young graduates, um, yeah, LinkedIn is a is a great starting point. Um, particularly if they already know a few people that have yeah, been in courses before them that might have jobs. Build that network, like you said, and uh, that's that's still a very valid way of, of looking for work. Yeah, and I don't think that necessarily just applies to graduates. I think that applies to anyone that's looking for a job is to continue building your networks. And obviously, what a great time to do it because a lot of people are online. A lot of people are, especially like in corporate environments, are working from home. They are in front of the computer more so than going out to site. So, uh, so uh, yeah, great time to do it. Um, and I'm certainly missing uh, not being able to go in, uh, go to Australia my uh, sort of yearly visit i'm an australian citizen myself anyway so i lived out there for 10 years and um yeah. I, I tend to go and try and go once a year um, especially and i try and time it around the imark conference which yeah. um is yeah. isn't probably gonna uh, won't be happening this year 
Um, no, I don't think it will. No. Uh, no. Um, okay. You can, you can come here, but you're going to have to spend two weeks sat in a hotel on your own. <laughs> Listen, I, I, don't mind, I don't mind spending as much, any, any amount of time in, in Australia. I much prefer it out there than the UK. Um, I, I lived out there for 10 years, so uh, yeah, right. um, yep. much prefer it out there than, than here. But yeah, I won't be moving anywhere at the moment for the foreseeable future. Um, so we've got some questions uh, obviously I want to ask you. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, PolarX um, and yeah. sort of where you explore and how the company was uh, sort of founded and how you actually got involved? Yeah, so PolarX, yeah, as you said in the introduction, you know, we explore in, uh, in Alaska in the United States. Um, so we're looking for, for copper and copper gold deposits there. We've had uh, some success. Um, Based on our own exploration and, and working, uh, working up other historical exploration, um, the company formed um, as Polar X. It formed in 2017, so about three years ago, and we we formed it by merging two companies. So there was a, a listed Australian company called Coventry Resources. Uh, they had a uh, uh, an earning on a block of uh, tenements around a project called Caribou Dome. Uh, and then there was also a, a private Australian uh, entity, um, yeah, a public company, <coughs> but um, um, yeah, not listed on the uh, Australian Stock Exchange. And that had the earning rights for the immediately adjacent property. Um, and I got involved with, with that private company because they were looking for seed funding to, uh, to pay for the uh, initial earning option fee. And, the person that was raising that money um, had raised money for me previously in one of my other companies and, and knew I was keen on a good quality copper gold project. And so he, he forwarded me the, uh, the details and said, you know, have a look, see if you're interested. And, um, and I really liked what I saw. You know, it had um, you know, large copper anomalies. It had a, a number of known copper deposits there of a style that, that through my former um, employment, I recognised yeah, that they might mean that there was something potentially much larger there. So I put a little bit of seed funding in, um, yeah, very small amount, and then I brought some of my colleagues in for the next round of seed funding. We got involved in, in more of a management role, so I became one of the, uh, the directors of, of that private company. Uh, and we were looking you know, for a way of, of either listing it or merging, and the guy that was raising the money knew that the, the uh, people next door were, were thinking about doing the same thing as it turned out, their, their office was just down the road from my office in Perth. So it's kind of crazy having two Australian-based companies with properties next door to one another in Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we got introduced and it was pretty clear straight away that, you know, by merging the two entities, we'd have a much stronger you know, presence. Um, and, and we also had the promise of funding if we merged the two together. So, uh, so we did that in 2017. As part of that deal, we... Um, we took full ownership of the northern part of the property. So the Vista Minerals, you know, the private side actually took ownership of the, uh, the mineral claims in that northern part of the project. Um, and, and as a result, had a, a North American shareholder who sold that, those claims to us. Um, and, and we ultimately used them for a lot of our first couple of years of exploration work because they knew the lay of the land. and That, that sort of taught us a lot about it. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of how the company formed, and, you know, and the reason you know that we got involved, or certainly why I got involved, was because I had this fabulous sort of um, mix of copper and gold anomalism um, in Alaska, and you know, Alaska's part of this you know really big 
um, sort of belt of rocks known as the sort of the Pacific Rim of Fire that hosts a lot of the world's biggest copper and gold projects. It's sort of, it's probably the most important sort of uh, zone of copper production in the world. And um, you know, probably 30 or 40% of all the world's copper comes from this one belt of rocks. It extends all the way from um, sort of Argentina and Chile and South America, all the way along the western part of the Americas and ultimately into Alaska. Um, and then rain on the other side through through parts of Siberia and into uh, the Southwest Pacific. So it's this, you know, pretty much encompasses the whole Pacific. It's got active volcanoes on it, and uh, and a lot of the types of copper deposits that we're looking for formed in the roots of volcanoes that, in this case, are obviously you know, tens to hundreds of millions of years old. But that's where these deposits formed. Uh, and Alaska is probably the least well explored part of that because it's it's remote and it's cold and at times a pretty miserable place to work um, and, and so it hasn't had the attention of some of the uh, you know the more exotic places like Peru and Chile so that was a really good combination and then add to that you know Alaska is also one of the better mining jurisdictions in the world so you, you know if you find something there um, and as long as you do the right thing from a permitting point of view and, and uh, have proper plans and proper environmental uh, management you're going to get your permit to mine um, and you, the asset's not going to be nationalised on you. you. You can have a stable tax regime. So if you find that you can develop it and you know exactly what the fiscal regime is. So it's a really good balance of really good quality geology with a really good quality jurisdiction, and, and it's underexplored. So it's a little bit like Western Australia, but turn the clock back 100 years. And, yeah. Uh, that's what we kind of liked about it. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, obviously, Alaska is probably one of the last places, generally speaking, if speak to anyone, that you would go and look as a country that you would go and explore. And obviously, you covered a few reasons as to why you would actually uh, explore there. Um, but what specifically took you there? Um, and, and I suppose more specifically around the project um, that you're involved yeah. in. What, 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 what has grabbed your attention for, for Alaska and for that particular project? Yeah, so it, it, it all comes down to the geology. Yeah, ultimately that's what drives you know, our desire to be there. And the fact that then it's a good jurisdiction and underexplored just, just makes it even better. So what we liked about it, it's in, as I said, in this you know, belt of rocks, which extends all the way across around the Pacific. The particular belt that we're in is rocks of a known age and a known composition. And they're known, that belt is known to host big uh, copper deposits uh, in Alaska and in Canada and then down into the sort of the northern part of the, the continental US and, and that style of copper deposits what people call a porphyry copper deposit they tend to be uh, very large deposits you know many often hundreds of millions to billions of tons but relatively low grade so they're the sorts of deposits that rely on the efficiency of scale um, and that style of deposit accounts for about 70% of the world's copper production. So it's a, it's a very important style of deposit. It's one that I did a lot of work on with, with Western Mining. And so I, um, I worked on a number of projects all over the world with, with Western Mining on this style of deposit. Um, and at one point in my career, I was responsible for uh, sort of building our um, conceptual model as to how these things form. So I felt I had a good understanding of, of the geology um, and the associated deposit types. So Alaska ticked that box in this particular belt of rocks, ticked that box. And then when, when, it, when it was first shown to me, the reason I really liked it and put some of my own money in was, you know, there'd been previous work done on the project 
including soil sampling, and it was highly anomalous in copper um, over a very large area, you know, a huge copper anomaly uh, in an area that had virtually no drilling in it. So it was, you know, it's like, well, this, this could be of interest. And then the final sort of piece of the puzzle was there was a deposit on the southern tip of this large copper anomaly called Zackley. Uh, and Zackley was described as a SCARN deposit, and that's a very technical term. It's a style of deposit that often forms in or around uh, clusters of porphyry deposits. So it's kind of the empirical evidence that the right process for a bigger deposit has operated. Um, but the SCARNs themselves can, in their own right, be very, very valuable deposits. They're often quite high grade, um, not always huge tonnages. Um, you know, so they range from a few million tonnes to generally a few tens of millions of tonnes and occasionally hundreds of millions of tons, um, but they can be very high grade. And so this Zackley deposit was there, it had been drilled in the 1980s, but it had virtually no drilling uh, done on that in the last 35 years. It appeared to be open, uh, both along strike and at depth. Um, and so we could see that there was immediate upside through further drilling on that project. Uh, but then you had this huge regional copper anomaly that hadn't been properly tested, that had the chance of being we're hosting one or more porphyry deposits and, and the work that we've done in the last three years has started to really you know put a, a bit of meat on the bones of that sort of concept um yeah to the extent where we did drill one hole last year and we've we think we've discovered a, a porphyry deposit we've, we've clipped the edge of you know the, the inner parts of one and we've got almost all grades over 100 plus meters of, of drilling uh, with the right sort of alteration to suggest we're, we're close to the best part of the system Plus, we've got some fabulous follow-up, uh, you know, high-grade gold copper zones in that exactly scan, and that's what we plan to follow up on this season because it's um, it's the best bang for our limited dollars. Uh, but yeah, that's what got what what got us there. It was you know it was the regional geology, and then it's the prospect scale geology, and what had been found in the past, and you put it all together, and it, it you know, creates a very strong case for there being you know short-term upside from the high-grade stuff, but potentially you know something that could turn a small you know tens of millions of dollar company into a billion dollar company if you do discover a porphyry copper they're highly sought after because they can have you know 50 year mine lives and at the moment you know copper is one of the commodities of, of choice you know the whole world's electrifying pretty much every electric motor still has copper wirings because it's the best you know per dollar uh, conductor of electricity uh, on the planet Mm. Um, and there's a bit of a supply shortage, you know, in terms of longer term. You know, a lot of the big deposits of the grades dropping, um, or you know, the new ones that have been discovered are in jurisdictions which are maybe not as favourable for mining as places like Alaska. So there's always question marks over their financial viability. And um, so, you know, finding a big copper deposit is uh, is kind of the first prize but on the way we can potentially find some you know super high grade smaller deposits that actually uh, are part of just slowly building that value um from yeah as i said the tens of millions of dollars through the hundreds on and onwards yeah assuming success of course yeah um obviously you've recently completed a capital raising to sort of cover the cost of the next phase of uh, of the project, um, who who are your main supporters, and and what you, do you sort of uh, plan to do with their investment? Yeah, so we've we've got very strong institutional support from uh, a number of uh, large funds out of uh, a number of places actually. So our largest shareholder now is uh, is Rough of Gold uh, from uh, from the UK, 
Um, they own nearly 15% of the company uh, and they were very strong supporters in the, the latest round of, uh, of fundraising. Uh, we've also got US Global on the register, which is a large uh, US fund. They own nearly 10%. Uh, Lundin Mining Corporation of, uh, of Canada is uh, another large shareholder. Um, they invested in us last year as part of that porphyry exploration. Um, and then yeah, we have uh, a number of smaller institutions uh, throughout Asia and Australia. So Hong Kong, Singapore, and, uh, and Australia itself. So yeah, strong institutional support. Management's got a you know, fairly big statement. Management's got nearly 11% collectively. So between you know, the top 20 shareholders, we own about uh, 70% of the company almost. Um, so very strong support there. Uh, as you said, we've recently raised money. We've raised about uh, $3.75 million before costs. Um, we plan to put most of that into a drilling program on the Zackley prospect. As I said, Zackley is this uh, high-grade scar, and it's actually gold rich. Um, so we've got a we've got a jork resource there, which is uh, 3.4 million tons at two grams per ton gold and 1.2 percent copper. Uh, so that's pretty high grade in, in terms of both of those elements. Um, and that that occurs over about a kilometer of strike length. But we've also got drilling that steps out further and further to the east. And uh, you know the two holes of, of real interest that were drilled um, in previous seasons included two uh, uh, hits of 50 metres at uh, three grams gold and half a percent copper, pretty much at surface. Um, and those were true width thicknesses, whereas most of the known mineralisation is averaging about five metres thick. Uh, and it's sub-vertical. These particular holes were, were clearly sub-horizontal mineralisation and much thicker. Um, and so it's telling us that we had a, a different structure there. It's still a SCARN deposit. It's still hosted in, in limestones, which are always the host rocks for SCARNs. Uh, but it seems to be where, in this case, the, the rocks are almost flat-lying rather than vertical. Uh, and you often see that sort of intense change of geometry in, in old mountain belts, which is what we're in. Um, so it shouldn't have been too much of a surprise. But, you know, the, the opportunity there for uh, a, quite a large tonnage with very small amounts of drilling, because it's sub-horizontal and thick and near surface, it means we can drill... 200 metre deep holes there uh, and, and potentially add you know, quite a lot of tonnes. Whereas if we drill, we'd have to drill four or 500 metre deep holes on the sub-vertical mineralisation, you're only going to get the same five to 10 metre intersection. So much better bang for our dollar. And uh, you know, we've got a target zone there that's between sort of 400 and 1,000 metres yeah, east-west in, in stripe length, and, yeah, at least 100, if not 200 metres down deep. If we can drill over that sort of an area and, and continually get those types of intersections, we're going to very rapidly build a big resource. And uh, as I said, they only need to be short holes. So you know, for us, that was that's the low-hanging fruit. You know, it's something that is is an obvious target to follow up. You know, three grams per ton gold at surface um, is worth a lot of money anywhere in the world. And what we've got to do now is use those funds wisely and uh, and, and make sure we can put you know. Uh, a block of continuous mineralization around those two existing holes. So yeah, there's obviously technical work going on behind the scenes to plan where that drilling is going to be undertaken. Um, we're pretty much ready to go. We've got drill rigs arriving on site in about uh, three weeks time. Uh, so we should be drilling by uh, hopefully around about the 18th of July. And, uh, and we plan to drill about uh, 20 holes, total of 3000 meters, have that wrapped up by early September. And uh, 
depending on those results, that would still give us another month of the season to uh, to do more work and either extend it or infill it if we think that's the appropriate thing to do. Yeah. Um, what's, what are some of the major challenges you faced uh, mining in Alaska compared to sort of other jurisdictions that you've worked in previously? Is there anything that sort of um, you felt could uh, be fine in other countries, but in Alaska it might be a bit different? So some of the sort of major challenges. Yeah, from a from a, a permitting point of view, generally no. Um, yeah. In fact, we found at the exploration stage, getting permits in Alaska is probably easier than anywhere else I've worked. Um, it's very similar to Western Australia. In fact, probably better in that. You know, we apply for a, a, an exploration permit which covers all of the uh, you know, likely types of exploration technology, and that's valid for four years. Uh, whereas in Western Australia, you do it on a sort of a campaign by campaign basis. And is there a reason why you f- you felt it was easier there? Yeah, well, as I said, simply simply that you know you can get a, a multi year permit which covers quite a broad area. Um, so that they're quite relaxed from that point of view. It's very very pro mining from that point of view. I think they understand that exploration you know requires people to make decisions on the fly and and uh, apply different technologies perhaps in slightly different areas than they initially thought in the beginning of the field season. The biggest challenge for us um, from a technical point of view is, is probably more around the terrain and it's relative remoteness. So there are parts of it that need helicopter support and that obviously is expensive. And, but that's a challenge. Um, and then the seasonality, you know, there are four or five months of the year where you really don't want to be out there because it's dark and cold and a lot of snow around. Now you could work there, but you know, it's going to be expensive and, you know, safety man- or management of safety becomes a, you know, a really big issue. It's always a big issue, but, but you have to put in, you know, extra special sort of, um, you know, cover there. Uh, so we just tend not to explore during winter because it's, it, it becomes very expensive and, and you're putting people at, at under higher risk. From a mining point of view, though, you know, you, you can mine all year round. You know, there's a number of very large world-class mines in Alaska. Uh, both open pit and underground, and they work. You know, they mine every day of the year. So once you once you're mining, you know, you, you put in the, the appropriate infrastructure and you just get on with it. But during expiration, um, you know, we tend to only work on the ground between sort of late April and uh, and sort of early October. So it's about a five five and a half month field season, and sometimes it can be shortened at both ends if you have a, 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 you know a, a harsh winter or an early winter coming in after that. Sometimes it's only a three month field season. Um, we, we've been lucky in the three years we've been there, we've, we've generally been able to work through till the first week of October. Um, but then it starts to become a little bit tricky. So that's, that's probably been the biggest challenge is that combination of logistics and, uh, and seasonality. Hmm. Um, you've, not, you've been known to say um, exactly, exactly is uh, just the tip of the, the iceberg. What, what do you mean by that? Um, and is there something better than Zachley in the Alaska range? Um, yeah, that's, I, have, I have said that. Um, and, and that's really why I got involved in the project in the first place. As, as I said earlier in the piece, you know, uh, the, the style of mineralisation at Zachley is what you often find associated with much larger porphyry systems. And, and the porphyry system really is the ultimate first prize here. So scarms form when fluids from a, a mineralized intrusion, which, which may form this porphyry deposit, if they escape from that system and move along faults and, and fissures uh, and then hit a the limestone, 
they react with that limestone uh, because the fluids are acidic and that's a very then it's a very efficient chemical deposition mechanism which is why you often get high grades in the scarms it's a very efficient chemical process um, so as i said scarms in their own right can be you know, a very viable um, deposit from a mining point of view because they're high grade but what i liked about them is the fact that they tell you that the right process for a porphyry to be present has operated and as i said yeah porphyries can be yeah, many hundreds of millions of tons to billions of tons. So you know, these these are things that have got you know, net present values of billions of dollars if you can find a good one. Um, and because a really big one is quite rare and because the copper market uh, long term is looking like it's got some supply issues, then you know, people would be prepared to pay a premium if you can find one. So mm. ultimately, that's what we're looking for. So that's what you know, exactly is sort of the, the little tip of that iceberg that says somewhere close by, there might be something much, much bigger that really has the value. And yeah, so we've been following up on that concept for the last two or three seasons. That's been what's really driving us. You know, we obviously want to create some short-term value from Zachley. Um, uh, but, you know, trying to get a really big porphyry is, is kind of what we're interested in. So that's why we brought Lundin Mining Corporation in last year. They funded a, a program there. Uh, we used those funds and we did. Uh, the final hole in that program did discover, we think, a, a porphyry um, at our Mars prospect and uh, so we drawed one 400 meter hole the bottom well the whole hole was mineralized with porphyry style veins and alterations but the bottom 100 meters was, was particularly strongly altered and mineralized not quite all grades but very very close to it um, and that hole was terminated in mineralization because we'd broken the drill bit and when we were putting the rods out to replace the drill bit the, the winter snows arrived so we had to pull everybody out of the project so we'd like to go and deepen that hole um, and maybe draw another two or three in that area. Um, but the, the challenge for us is, you know, porphyry exploration, you know, requires lots of dollars um, because you're often drilling a large number of very deep holes. Um, and in the case of Mars, it requires helicopter support. So, you know, your average cost per meter becomes quite high. And if you're drilling lots of deep holes, it suddenly becomes a, a multi-million dollar program. So you really need to be able to spend sort of $10 million a year uh, as a minimum to properly explore a porphyry project. You probably need to do that for two or three years. So you, you need somebody that's prepared to fund sort of 20 to $30 million worth of work. For a company of our size, that's kind of difficult to fund without sort of blowing up the share register. Uh, you know, it's highly dilutive. And of course, you, you, know, you don't want to take on debt and you probably can't take on debt anyway. So our sort of philosophy there is, is to find a partner to come in and, and, and fund that at a project level so rather than take the dilution at the parent level have somebody funded at the project level to earn in so you know, ideally spend 20 to 30 million dollars over three years to earn a majority in the project but but not a super majority so you know, just a yeah 51 percent so that we then have 49 uh, and then with our strong shareholder support out of uh, these, these institutions you know, once you know you've got a discovery there that the major party coming in is funded because we've got that strong shareholder support, you know, we're pretty confident that we'll then be able to raise our own funding in a much less dilutive environment to fund our share of on, ongoing costs of that. But it's, it's making that discovery. Uh, and then it's also important, you know, that the market can see you've got a partner that's capable of developing the project. You know, very few juniors go on and you know, build a, a multi-billion dollar mine for, for obvious reasons. You know, you don't have the, the financial capacity, you often don't have the necessary skill set in-house. Yeah, you need a big partner to do that anyway. 
Yeah. So you have to bring them in at some point. And our view is, if if you are unable to raise those funds yourself because it's too dilutive early on, bring in the partner early. And give yourself the best chance of making a discovery because you'll still get the recognition and the value uplift. Yeah. So uh, obviously the the porphyry targets sound obviously pretty big. How you look? How do you sort of envisage, envisage funding further down the line? Um, obviously, you've covered some of that. Is it yes. bringing? Is it bringing in a a bigger partner? To, it, it, it's to exactly that, Rob. Yeah, yeah. As I said, yeah, it's it's, <clears throat> it's too dilutive for us. You know, a market cap of sort of fifteen million dollars to go and raise ten million dollars. Yeah. Just to do that, that, a high risk porphyry program. Yeah, I think. Yeah, if you had. Yeah, clear yeah hundreds of meters of ore grades you'd have a higher market cap you might be able to do it but at the moment we can't so yeah we've we've been talking to a number of uh, sort of mid-tier to major mining companies we set up a data room i think we signed uh, nine confidentiality agreements earlier in the year before covid sort of put a bit of a, 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 yeah, a bit of a roadblock in the way there so yeah we've still got a number of those companies that have you know have now looked at the data they've effectively done their desktop due diligence um, and now they would like to come in and, and have a look at the drill core, uh, which is in Alaska. And at the moment, with the sort of the, the quarantining restrictions or requirements, I should say, um, and some of these bigger companies have obviously got you know pretty uh, stringent internal security and, and health and safety protocols. Just getting people in there to look at the uh, the core has been difficult. Yeah. But you know we're pretty confident that we'll, we'll be able to do that later this year. Uh, and. Yeah, hopefully have uh, quite a number of those parties look at the look at the drill core. Yeah. Uh, they've seen the data, so they can then form a view whether they uh, they wish to partner with us. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that that's that's the the, the plan for for funding that part of the uh, the work program. Yeah. What what kind what type of miner do you think would be interested in a project like this? Uh, look, I think pretty much all of, all of the big miners at the moment are very keen on base metals projects. Uh, you know, there's. Mm. Uh, even some of the people you, know, you would normally think of as, as gold only, uh, uh, some of them are starting to think about sort of diversifying away from that. Now, some, some of them won't uh, because, you know, they've got shareholders that are in there you know, exclusively for the gold. Uh, but a number of them, I think, are considering, you know, sort of expanding. And what we can offer in, in a porphyry copper is, is often they can be gold rich anyway. So. Yeah, it's whilst it's a diversification of a portfolio, it's it's not a, a massive step change. Um, we know all the big, uh, you know, all the big miners that are diversified, they they all are keen to find a large, good quality porphyry copper deposit in a mining friendly jurisdiction, because as I said, you know, they can often be, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 year mine lives, um, and because of their scale, they can produce you know hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue a year. And so that's the sort of scale of project that those big companies need to sort of move their dials anyway. Um, as I said, the, the, the challenge is that they are, because of their size, they're expensive to explore, they're expensive to put through a feasibility study because it's just a lot of work that has to be done. Um, and then you've got a potentially lengthy uh, permitting process just because of the scale of the project. So again, having the right partner there is pretty important. Um, yeah. But yeah, we've seen interest from We've obviously signed confidentiality agreements. So I can't name the parties, yeah. but yeah, they're all known, yeah, very well-known names in the mining business because that's their business. Their business is to go and find new opportunities. Yeah. Um, looks like obviously you've got a uh, busy, uh, busy year ahead. Um, what can sort of investors expect in terms of news flow and key uh, key milestones? Yeah. 
So yeah, as I said earlier, we've got um, we've got a, a two drill rigs that will be arriving on site, hopefully around about the 15th of uh, July. Um, I hope to have those drilling within a couple of days of that. The drill holes are exactly going to be relatively short, and and because the style of mineralisation there is is fairly visually obvious when you drill it. Uh, we'll we'll start getting uh, geological information out probably within two to three weeks of commencing that drill program. So really, from sort of late first week in uh, in August, we'll start to get visual results coming through, and then shortly after that, we'll start getting you know proper uh, chemical assay results coming back as well. So really, from sort of uh, early August all the way through, then till the end of the drilling program, and when we get all of the assays back, which will take us well into October, there's going to be pretty strong news flow around that. Yeah, if we have really good success with the drilling program, um, we'll have material to do some metallurgical studies on. Yeah, if, if we think there's a good chance we'll get a resource, we'll both start doing the resource estimation work and we'll start doing the metallurgy. So, yeah, that would lead to further news flow sort of late third quarter um, and into the fourth quarter of the year. So if we have a successful campaign, you're going to have strong news flow basically between now and, and the end of the year. And... Uh, and then potentially leading to decision-making whether to go into sort of pre-feasibility study mode early next year. Uh, and then a follow-up campaign of infill drilling just to you know, firm up the resource and be ready for you know, a final feasibility study, you know, maybe towards the back end or starting that towards the back end of next year. So you know, it's quite a, you know, quite a lot of sort of uh, high-frequency news flow over the next three to four months uh, and then some pretty big chunky items coming up sort of late this year and early next year. Yeah. And uh, do you have a sort of an exit plan or are you looking to see this through to construction, production and, and, and ongoing? Or are you looking to maybe exit at a certain stage? So, so there's two very different answers to that. What, for, for exactly the answer is yes, we do plan to stay in there. Um, and the reason for that is it's we think it's going to be the sort of size of potential operation that a company of our scale can, can, can do. Um, yeah, our chairman's had quite a, uh, a long experience of, of building you know, mining companies that have you know, had construction costs of that sort of 100 to $200 million range. Um, and, and that's what we sort of see exactly. If exactly were to turn into a 10-year mining operation that, that might require, say, $100 million to build a mine, then that's something that we would want to stay in because we can create a lot of value for existing shareholders by developing that. And, and we've got the skill sets to, to do part of that. Uh, and we obviously bring in the, the actual mine builders you know, at the appropriate time. Yeah. Um, the porphyry on the other you know, sort of uh, side, though, is, is much larger. That, that's something that we would always struggle to, to fund. And, and we're a small company. We don't have the experience of building big open pits. Um, you know, it's, it's a huge corporate exercise as well. You know, there's a lot of you know, massive amount of, uh, of stakeholder engagement just because of the scale of the project. Um, so that's something where you, you, you clearly will need a big partner. And, and really the only choice there is who do you partner with and, and when do you bring them in? Do you bring them in after you've made the discovery, which can be very dilutive because if you've got to pay to make that discovery, uh, or do you bring them in early uh, and accept that you lose control of the project a little bit earlier than you otherwise might. But if you're careful and, and smart with the way you structure your joint ventures, you, you can ensure that that incoming party is kept honest by having to meet yeah, minimum expenditure commitments and work commitments each year so that they can't sort of park the project on you if their circumstances change uh, and you don't let them earn 
uh, a single percentage of the prospect until they've actually completed a, a major investment of you know, 20, 30 million dollars. So it's, it's all or nothing. Um, but yeah, I don't think we'd ever consider ourselves to be miners of a porphyry. Um, as I said, though, exactly on the other hand, if we can get that to 10, 15 million tonnes, you know, those sorts of copper and gold grades, then we'd certainly we'd put a team around you know, doing the feasibility studies, um, finance, construction and mining of that. Yeah, well, it sounds it sounds really exciting, and obviously a lot of a uh, lot of a uh, um, lot of work ahead of you, um, and I obviously wish you well in your uh, progress. Um, if our audience wants to sort of reach out to you, how can they uh, go about doing that? And are you on sort of any social media platforms as well? So yeah, I'm I'm on LinkedIn, so you can find me pretty easily on LinkedIn. So um, yeah, I, I will always respond to, to a message on on the LinkedIn site. Or uh, yeah, through our website, you can uh, subscribe there or just uh, reach out through the website. Um, there's all the contact details are on that. So yeah, yeah um, I, uh, I, I will always talk to people, uh, shareholders, potential investors, or just people that are interested in what we're doing. Um, yeah. I'm always happy to pick up the phone and give somebody a call. Yeah, no worries. And alternatively, you can uh, reach out to me and I can pass any uh, messages on to Fraser. Um, yeah, if you obviously can't get through, um, really appreciate your time, Fraser. Tell us uh, about Polar X. Um, certainly, uh, it's a, um, I suppose, a unique opportunity, especially mining in Alaska as well. So, hopefully, the audience have uh, picked up a lot of things, a uh, lot of lessons, a lot of um, education on uh, some of the things that you're doing, and um, hopefully, uh, a lot of them will be following your progress. So, I really appreciate your time. Great. Thanks, Rob. Really, no really nice to talk to you. Yeah. And, uh, and to the audience, uh, appreciate you uh, listening. Um, please keep sharing the uh, podcast um, and, and obviously share this episode as well. Pass, pass this episode on to uh, any, any people you feel that may be interested in hearing more about um, what PolarX are doing. Um, that's really, uh, that'd be really appreciated. So um, until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep the mining podcast if there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow rob and mining international on linkedin facebook twitter and youtube for more content and to have your questions answered until next time happy mining